Hello, my name's Tom Boone. And I'm Jake Hardiman. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up today, Tom will talk Airbus and I'll talk Boeing. I'll reveal while I was in Amsterdam this week, while Jake takes a look across the North Sea at Heathrow Airport. Finally, Tom will explore how Breeze Mark 220. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And I wanted to start really by talking about why I was in Toulouse last week, because that was exciting. And that was for the reveal of Airbus's annual results. Um, so there's two things I really want to talk about here, and none of them is getting up at five in the morning. Um, <laughs> but firstly, I wanted to briefly talk about Airbus's new Terminal D, which we were fortunate enough to get a tour of before the results. It's a new part of the delivery center in Toulouse with the D standing for delivery. The purpose of the building is to allow the transfer of title for aircraft to take place adjacent to the delivery center because uh, before this was built, these took place on the other side of the airport and they only had the capacity to do about four at once, but now they have the capacity to do 12 um, signovers at any one time, which I think was really cool. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail on the podcast because there's going to be an upcoming piece on simpleflying.com. So definitely keep an eye out on that. But essentially, Airbus gave us a bit of a behind the scenes look at how an aircraft is delivered on paper, which I really found was fascinating because this is something that's usually very behind closed doors. Usually when we go to um, any delivery, they say, oh, you don't take any pictures of any other aircraft that are around. But this time they they were just like, yeah, you know, take any pictures you want. So I think that's going to be a really cool piece to read a bit later. Um, but, you know, the results themselves, well, there's a lot of numbers and I'm not really going to go into so much of the numbers. You can read them on Simple Flying. I think the more exciting part of the whole event was the Q&A with Guillaume Fauri afterward. So one thing I was really excited about asking was the new Zero E program, because during his presentation, Fauri alluded to a 2035 entry into service for Airbus's new hydrogen aircraft, which, you know, to me sounds very ambitious, um, considering that there's so much to be done. So I took the time to ask him, you know, what does that timeline look like to get to an entry into service in 11 years from now uh, for an aircraft and a technology that's not currently defined. So Fauri was really excited to answer this question and he revealed that the manufacturer is currently deciding on how to power the engines of this aircraft. So there's kind of two ways they're looking at. The first way is to sort of burn hydrogen directly to power the engines, kind of like how burning fuel powers the engines of the aircraft today. But there's also the option to um, create electricity sort of within the aircraft by burning hydrogen and then using this electricity to power motors on um, the engines as opposed to direct um, burning. So they're currently looking at both of these, deciding which ones they want to use. The decision for this is expected in 2025 or 2026, and the program is officially due to be launched in 27 or 28. I also asked Fauri about the biggest risk factors when it comes to the launch, and he revealed that the technology, the product itself, the regulatory framework that is less visible, but we cannot be launching a product if we do not have certification standards for the production, logistics, distribution of hydrogen on site, on airports, etc. So, you know, the two really big things that um, flagged up to me was one, you know, 
how do you build an aircraft when you don't have the certifications to build it for? You know, um, it, it's difficult to really define. Like, you don't want to. You could build one thing, and then if EASA could come up with totally different certifications, you'd have to completely scrap it. And of course, the other thing is um, you need to fuel these aircraft. So, you, someone I don't know if it's Airbus or airports or whoever, but someone within the industry has to decide how we're going to get all of this hydrogen to all of the airports to refuel aircraft etc. But that was not the only exciting thing in the, or exciting, I mean, exciting for journalists, maybe not so exciting for um, Airbus, because they revealed that they're now expecting the A321 XLR to enter into service in Q3 of this year, and not Q2 as previously expected. So on this, Forey said, we're in the finalization of the documents, as you know, coming close to certification. We need to close all of them, and there are thousands, and in the preparations of planes for the first deliveries. As I mentioned earlier, the first A321 XLR for a customer has entered into the final assembly line at the end of last year. So, you know, it's just a paperwork thing at the moment for that. And um, it looks like there's no sort of real derailing that's pushing the 321 XLR back, but more a case of we need to tick some more boxes and cross some more T's and dot some more I's. So excited to see that later this year and find out who the launch customer is, because I think it's still a little bit up in the air. Yeah, well, I mean that's all. That's very exciting for Airbus. I mean, I um, I got to visit their Toulouse facilities a couple of years ago, and it's um, a fantastic, yeah, sprawling site. And yeah, the A three twenty one XLR is one that I'm very excited to see uh, enter into service. I've uh, not tried one of these long range narrow body flights yet, but uh, now could be the time. Mm. Yes, it's not just uh, Airbus that's been busy with exciting news this week, but also its US rival Boeing um, that scored a couple of big orders uh, on the first day of the Singapore Air Show that's been taking place. Um, these uh, these orders were both for its 7879 Dreamliner uh, wide-body aircraft, um, and one of the customers was Royal Brunei. Um, this carrier has added four of the 787-9s to its um, to its order book uh, to complement the five shorter fuselage 787-8s that are already in its fleet. Um, these um, these existing aircraft that it has um, from the 787-8 model seat 254 passengers across two classes uh, in a layout with 236 economy seats and 18 in business class. Um, and according to Boeing, the 787-9's capacity is around 20% larger. So assuming that they go with a similar split, you'd expect a capacity of around 300 for these new aircraft. Obviously, Royal Brunei has uh, a nice long working relationship with Boeing, um, having been flying the 787-8 for just over a decade. And in fact, when it received its first example of the smaller Dreamliner in late 2013, it became the first Southeast Asian carrier to fly the type. As well as increasing its capacity, um, Royal Brunei and Boeing hope that uh, the incoming 787-9s will help the airline uh, expand its long-haul footprint uh, and serve busier routes. Um, the, the type has a range of 14,010 kilometres or 7,565 nautical miles. So yes, while Brunei is a very far-flung destination, um, aircraft like these bring it just that little bit closer to the rest of the world. 
The airline CEO Sabirin bin Haji Abdul Hamid commented that the new fleet will allow us the potential to tap into new growth areas, strengthening our market appeal and enabling us to provide a superior travel experience to our guests. So, I mean, reading between the lines there, um, you'd think that as well as boosting capacity on the routes that the 787-8s already fly, there might be the uh, potential to unlock a few new corridors uh, with the new aircraft. That's also something that Boeing's senior vice president of commercial sales and marketing, Brad McMullen, echoed. Uh, and he said that the 787-I will deliver the versatility, efficiency, and range that Royal Brunei Airlines desires to pursue increasing air travel and tourism opportunities. So uh, an exciting one there, but that uh, wasn't where the fun ended for Boeing, uh, as it also announced a big order with Thai Airways on the first day of the Singapore Air Show this week. So the, uh, the Thai flag carrier um, confirmed an order for a whopping 45 examples of the 787-9 in a deal that had officially been finalised back in December last year. But at the time, uh, Thai was um, reflected only as an unidentified customer uh, on Boeing's orders and deliveries page. So uh, now that's been made official, um, that's a big step forward for Thai, particularly um, with them being uh, such yeah, efficient aircraft as the country looks to uh, work towards carbon neutral goals by 2050. Um, it does already fly the 787 in limited numbers uh, with data from CH Aviation showing that it has eight Dreamliners in total, of which six are the smaller 787-8 and two are the mid-sized 787-9. So obviously this latest order will greatly increase its capacity on that front. Interestingly as well, um, Thai has uh, chosen to equip the incoming aircraft from this new order with their engines from General Electric, uh, whereas its previous um, iterations of the type are equipped with Rolls-Royce Trent 1000 interest engines. So an interesting change there, but certainly overall uh, a very exciting um, Singapore air show for Boeing. Yeah, it, did. I, it sounds like it. And I found it really intriguing that you mentioned that maybe Royal Brunei can just go that little bit further because that's kind of what um, Fly Dubai might be doing with their 787s when they come online. So I'm I'm really excited to see what happens Absolutely. there. But yeah, in terms of my next story, I don't really have a good segue from Boeing 787s to Amsterdam. Can't get it every time. I know. Um, there was more traveling for me anyway. And yesterday, as we record this, I had the privilege of flying to Amsterdam to attend the launch of One World's first branded European lounge. And that's the second lounge worldwide um, that's officially One World branded, branded after Incheon opened exactly a month earlier. So that was 21st of January, and this was 21st of February. And you may be thinking, well, hang on. One World has had this lounge in Los Angeles for ages. Um, no, that's officially a Qantas lounge um, that's kind of semi-One World, but it doesn't have all of the One World travel bright branding that this one does. Um, but, you know, what is the lounge like? Well, overall, the lounge has a very bright, young and funky feel to it, matching the travel bright branding that was launched by the Alliance during its 20th anniversary celebrations in London five years ago. However, there are also a range of darker colours spread around the lounge. For example, most of the seating follows the royal blue colour scheme of the One World logo. I found it really interesting that there's a limited number of red seats and tables down one end of the lounge, and I thought this was perhaps inspired by Qatar Airways' colours, but who knows. Um, immediately opposite as you enter the lounge, though, you've got just... The, the sort of check-in booths for the lounge are actually outside the lounge, and then you just walk through this archway, and then immediately in front of you is a staffed bar called the Carousel. 
Now, the carousel offers a range of drinks from soft drinks, coffees, wines, champagnes, spirits, mixers, and supposedly even cocktails. And all of these drinks are prepared to order. So the coffee is made by a barista supplied by Swissport. Um, ice is also available. You know, the fridges under the bar even had funky disco mood, mood lighting, which changes color every few seconds. Um, it's very fun and young and bright is, is the sort of overall branding here. Um, but, you know, drinks were generously poured, um, although this seemed to be the only location that some drinks were available in the lounge. There were, interestingly, self-service coffee machines um, dotted around the lounge and a few cold drinks fridges elsewhere in the lounge. But, you know, I'm thinking, why would you have a self-service machine coffee if there's somebody making barista coffee in the middle? But hey, um, who am I to judge? Along the counter in the large alcove were a spread of food and drinks. Um, on the very left-hand side, you've got a very limited selection of hot food. So when we ar arrived, it was breakfast time, and this consisted of pancakes, scrambled eggs, lentil soup, mustard soup, and miso soup. You know, I think that's missing some bacon and some uh, hash browns and maybe some mushrooms. But um, again, you know, maybe it's going to be expanded after the official opening because yesterday was kind of just a soft launch for press and invited guests. Um, further round, you've got breads, rolls, pastries, cereals to please any taste, complete range of accompaniments. There's also an intriguing large uh, round saucer that's filled with ice to keep milk and juices cool. Um, there's more fruit than you could shake a stick at. On the very right of the catering aircraft, there was also a large uh, fridge with a range of soft drinks, and there was also red and white wine on offer. Now, the majority of the seating is very open lounge-style seating. There's a few booths dotted here and there, mainly at either end of the lounge, but these are very few and far between, and I think if you're going into the lounge for privacy, this is not the lounge for you. Um, most of the seating in the lounge is positioned at a right angle to the large panoramic glass windows, so um, almost all of it is facing either one end of the lounge or the other and not outwards. There's some, a, a few seats facing outwards. Um, and in the catering area, you've got this really long table that has a row of bright pop lights originating from the centre. You know, there's also several waves of sofas along the length of the lounge. They've got dividers between the seats and we tried them out and we thought they were kind of a bit too far apart for one person, but too close for two people to sit comfortably for an extended period. Um, all of the sort of individual couch style seats and sofas have power. Um, I was particularly excited to see that they have USB-C and USB-A. Um, but, you know, some of the power sockets are at an odd angle. And, uh, you know, with my huge MacBook charger from way back when, you can only fit that in one way. Again, you know, I was quite surprised that given this is an airport setting, they only had European plug sockets on offer. So uh, some passengers might be out of luck um, if they want to charge their devices. But looking at the old photos, you know, it's certainly a huge improvement over the old British Airways facility that was located in this space before. And I definitely recommend a visit of it if you're eligible for access and traveling through Amsterdam. I guess the only downside for One World is that the lounge is just facing the wrong um, piece of the apron, if you must say. There's all KLM and a few Delta flights that you can see and no One World carriers <laughs> from the window. Um, but we did see a British Airways taking off in the background. So uh, I guess there's that. There you go, every cloud. 
But yeah, speaking of um, British Airways, as, as you did, uh, their main hub, London Heathrow Airport, released its yearly financial results earlier this week uh, for the calendar year of 2023. And uh, this was um, yeah, big news for Heathrow as it marked the first time that the facility has been able to record a full year profit since 2019, uh, showing yeah, the strength of its recovery as it bounces back from uh, the challenges of the pandemic era. So overall last year, it made a pre-tax profit of £38 million or $48 million, uh, having served 79.2 million passengers across just over 45,000 flights. This, in terms of passenger numbers, makes it the airport's third busiest year on record behind 2018 and 2019, uh, when it uh, just about exceeded 80 million on both of those occasions. But this year, the airport's aiming to break this record and is targeting a total of 81.4 million passengers. Um, to think that, yeah, just a year previously, it made a £684 million loss, and the year before that, in 2021, a total loss of £1.27 billion. This um, is definitely a positive sign that Heathrow is over the hump in terms of its recovery. Although, that being said, um, it's one thing to make a profit, but another to continue this profitability and even to grow it uh, in the years to come. And that's something that the airport's recently appointed CEO, Thomas Waldby, uh, reflected on, saying that the airport will have to pull every lever to become more efficient and make tough choices on where we spend and invest our money to overcome the huge cost challenge set by the Civil Aviation Authority and remain profitable over the next three years. One of the main considerations um, in terms of the, the airport's outgoing expenditure is that it's uh, making considerable ongoing investment in some of its airport infrastructure. This includes security upgrades uh, as well as a new baggage system at Terminal 2. Uh, but perhaps most notably, uh, since Walby's appointment as CEO, the debate surrounding the proposed third runway at Heathrow Airport has uh, brightened up all over again. And that's a project that would reportedly cost between 14 and 17 billion pounds. So um, yeah, the airport will definitely be hoping for more strong growth in the coming years to offset those considerable costs that I guess then will hopefully eventually pay for itself in the long term with the extra capacity that a third runway would bring if it was to be built. Looking at uh, this year's ambitious target of 81.4 million passengers, we can compare that to the total number of seats that are available uh, on flights to and from Heathrow in 2024, which um, aviation analytics company Sirium puts at 105.5 million. Um, and that means that a load factor of just over 77% across all flights would be required in order to receive achieve that goal of 81.4 million passengers this year. As you might expect, British Airways accounts for almost half of the 105.5 million seats available, uh, with a total of 48.9 million, followed up by Virgin Atlantic and American Airlines with 6.6 .6 million and 4.8 million uh, seats, re respectively. Of course, uh, those carriers aren't necessarily the biggest in terms of the number of flights operated, but because with regards to Heathrow, they exclusively fly long-haul aircraft, uh, that's where those numbers add up pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I found it really interesting there that you talked about the new security experience because I managed to get um, to, to use that earlier this week. And um, this is these new CT scanners that you can put oh, your bag on. Yes, I had that over Christmas. 
Yeah, you don't need to take your laptop out. You don't need to take your liquids out. It's wonderful. Uh, I had it in uh, Frankfurt before I flew to Toulouse last week as well. It really is the future, and I can't wait for this to become the norm across airports because it's going to be game-changing. Um, but I wanted to now hop across the Atlantic um, for my next story, and I think this next story should be a bit of a breeze. Do you want to know oh, why? Very good. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Well, the U.S. low-cost carrier Breeze Airways has revealed an order for an additional for additional Airbus A220 aircraft, and I love the timing of this because it was announced on February 20th, or if you're in the Americas, 220. Um, so the carrier announced it's converting 10 of its options for uh, Airbus A220s into third or firm orders, and this will make Breeze the third largest A220 customer worldwide. So the carrier confirmed it's going to transition its all of its scheduled operations to its A220 fleet, which is configured with 12 seats in the premium business ascent cabin, uh, breeze ascent cabin, sorry, followed by 45 seats um, with extra legroom, an 80 in standard economy at the back. But the move is also going to enable Breeze to operate the youngest fleet in the country with an average aircraft age of less than two years old. So commenting on this, and I apologize as always for my name pronunciation, but uh, Benoit de Saint-Exupéry, who's the EVP of sales and commercial aircraft at Airbus, noted how the aircraft fits with Breeze's growth strategy. He said, thanks to its world-class performance capabilities, the A220 is the perfect aircraft to help Breeze achieve its goal to provide non-stop service between underserved routes across the United States. The aircraft offers efficient operations and an outstanding passenger experience, all while operating the world's lowest single, small single-aisle carbon footprint and a lower noise footprint in the communities where it flies. This additional offer order from Breeze is a strong endorsement of the value and opportunities offered by this latest generation aircraft. So according to officials at Breeze, approximately a quarter of the airline's customers are now repeat passengers, and many of them have responded positively to the A220, highlighting features such as the large windows and overhead bins. Breeze's Airways CEO, David Nelliman, confirmed that the carrier is receiving new aircraft at a rate of one to two per month now, um, and he expects to receive the entirety of the order by 2028. Who knows, by then maybe they order even more A220s. Uh, but when he was asked about the airline's reasoning for the conversion to firm orders, he noted that the carrier had identified up to 4,000 routes that are possible using the A220 and expressed a desire to solidify its orders to avoid its options aircraft falling further down the backlog. The planes are going to gradually replace the carrier's Embraer aircraft, um, and they'll uh, shift to exclusively charter operations. And it's interesting because Breeze's charter business is growing rapidly, flying over 600 flights per month and increasing by up to 51% in peak months year over year. But talking about this transition, Nelliman noted how the A220 is opening up markets and resonating well with customers. He said, we're always growing, adding new cities and routes, but we're also seeing more of our markets mature, resulting in more frequencies there too. Also, travelers love flying the A220, which is clear from our NPS scores in the mid-70s and our high percentage of repeat guests. What better date than 220 to announce the purchase of more A220s? So there you have it. Even more A220s on 220. Very nice. I wonder if they'll uh, repeat the trick next year. 
or a, or an Airbus A330 on the 30th of March, perhaps. Maybe not quite this year. <laughs> Maybe not for Breeze. <laughs> we can dream. But yes, I think that's... 20th uh, of March. <laughs> yeah. 21st of March, 19th of March. <laughs> the list goes on. But uh, yeah, before we go into a rabbit hole of dates, I think that's just about all we have time for for today's podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it and we welcome any feedback at editorial at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening and bye. Bye.